Thank you. Good morning again. Um, so we, we continue um, our series looking at the Beatitudes from um, Matthew chapter 5. The, the verse there is the one we're focusing upon this morning, which is uh, from verse 7. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I wonder what, what mercy means to you. What does the word um, bring about in your mind? It's not really a word we use very often in our modern vocabulary. It sounds perhaps more at home in feudalism than our contemporary society. Perhaps it sounds more relevant to the courts, the royal courts, rather than contemporary life. But I wonder what it makes you think of when you think of the word mercy. What we appear to have in the beatitude here in verse 7 is something of a, a quid pro quo exchange of Mercy. It sounds like those who are merciful will in, in return receive mercy. You scratch my back, God, God will scratch your back. But what I tried to lay out on the table in, in the first sermon uh, that, that I preached on, in, just to kickstart this series, really was that the Beatitudes, they're not a list of uh, requirements, they're not a list of commands that determine whether or not God chooses to love us or chooses to forgive us. The Beatitudes, and, and this one included, they are, they're more like a mandate. They're more like um, the DNA of what the kingdom of God looks like, who Jesus is, and what he expects his followers to be. But what we, what we do read, and I think if, you know, even hearing that parable read out, what we do read in this, or understand through this Beatitude and in the, in the parable, which we'll, we'll open up in a moment, is the very serious expectation that God places upon those who have received and experienced his mercy. That we too in turn are to exercise that same mercy to those who offend us, those who sin against us, those who hurt us and damage us and inflict evil upon us. And mercy itself, when we think about mercy, it's, it's a relational concept, isn't it? In the Beatitude, we are, we are called to, to experience mercy for ourselves. We're also called to exercise mercy towards one another. We're called to experience the forgiveness of God through the cross of Christ. And we're called to exercise forgiveness through the cross of Christ. And only upon that foundation of our own redemption and our songs we were just singing, they were saturated with this theme. That we can only really begin to extend other people mercy from our heart when we realize that God has forgiven us. So let's look at this, um, this parable of the merciful servant. Um, in chapters 18 to 19 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is de dealing more broadly with uh, relational dynamics. What it means to be human, what it means to live together, what it means to live in relationship with God. And in the middle of all this, we find this parable called the unmerciful servant, which I think really helps illustrate what this beatitude, this verse from Matthew 5 is all about. And it begins with Simon Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, asking Jesus, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And I mean, what, what, what do you think is underlying that question in the first place? It seems perhaps like a bit of an alien concept to you and me sat here this morning that there should be some strict rule for how many times we, we should forgive someone. But of course, Peter was asking this in the context of his Jewish faith and the Jewish traditions and rites. But it does bring about, doesn't it, the, the, the question about the nature of forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to be the person uh, that's called to forgive? What does that look like? 
And he's a person really considered to have carried out all their moral responsibilities and duties after declaring forgiveness over somebody X number of times. Is that how this works? And it's interesting actually considering why Peter mentions the number seven. Some scholars think about the perfect number associated with God, but I think it's actually really interesting when we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, we read Genesis chapter four. You'll all be familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. And after Cain Cain has murdered his brother, uh, we, we read these words. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment, Lord, is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You've made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. But the Lord replies, no, for I will give you a sevenfold punishment for anyone who kills you. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn him against anyone who might try to kill him. And then a few verses later in the same chapter, we read of a a man called Lamech, the great, great grandson of Cain. And one day Lamech says to his wife, I've killed a man who attacked me, a young man who wounded me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. And in this early story in the Bible, in this Genesis narrative, we see what what seems to be like an accumulation or a, a multiplication of judgment and punishment in relation to sin. If you retaliate and seek revenge, you can expect to be punished seven or 77 times more severely than what happened to you. And I don't think it's a coincidence then when we we see this encounter between Peter and Jesus, where they're talking about forgiveness, that Jesus reappropriates and reframes this idea of the accumulation or multiplication of judgment into the narrative of forgiveness. Because in the currency of the kingdom of heaven, what we've been talking about the past few weeks is that mercy, mercy is the dominant resolution to conflict and sin, not judgment. And so before we go any further, we have to hear, we have to accept what Jesus himself is all about, what his kingdom is all about, what we are all about as his followers and as the church, that Jesus, his kingdom, his church, his people, we are fundamentally a people of mercy. Why? Because God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Mercy is the precedent set by God through his son, now at work in us through the power of the spirit. We believe in a God of mercy. We sing and proclaim a gospel of mercy. And we exist and we're called to exist as a church that's shaped by mercy. So let's look through this parable. Firstly, uh, the, the slides for each of these. Firstly, God is settling his accounts. Hope you can read that. Jesus begins by comparing the kingdom of heaven to a king, bringing his accounts up to date. And this this chapter that we're all sat here this morning, this chapter of human history, this chapter of the Bible's narrative, this season of the church is defined by God's reckoning. God is restoring, God is renewing all things, and he's bringing all things to order again. God is settling his accounts And as we read through the New Testament, waiting, the idea of waiting is such a a strong central theme to the New Testament. And we are, we find ourselves in this season of waiting while God is reckoning and settling his accounts, waiting for the second coming of Jesus who will eventually pronounce a final judgment over all of creation. 
And even now, imminently, any day, we will stand before the King of Kings. And we'll have to give an account for our own lives. And we're well aware at the moment, I think we all feel this, that sense of financial insecurity, job loss, um, debt, market collapse, short-term loans, worrying about bills and having to pay for food. And at the best, this idea that God is reckoning things, it should be unsettling for us, I think. At the very best, the thought of us being called before the king to settle our accounts before him should, at the very least, make us review our own lives. And the servant, the the main character in this parable, we are told, owed the king millions of pounds, billions of pounds. The commentaries say that it's the equivalent to 375 metric tons of silver. Another commentary says that the poor servant owed the king more money than was even in circulation in the whole country at that time. So it's not an insignificant amount that we're dealing with here. And the point is, it might be exaggerated. I think that is the point that This is a vast, incalculable amount of money that could never, ever, ever be paid back. It's a hopeless scenario. And of course, there are repercussions, aren't there, when we think about debt and the logical concern for the king in the parable. For anyone trying to run a kingdom or a society is that debts need to be paid somehow. And in the parable, we hear at first, as would have been normative in the first century, that the The servant himself, his family, all his possessions, all that he owned, were to be sold into slavery as recompense. The servant's own life and all that he cared about was suddenly at stake. And so the intensity of the situation goes from uncomfortable to very, very serious. And this scene for us reading this, you know, trying to enter ourselves into this story, it's not just an unsettling scene that we're dealing with here. The situation, the reality of our own indebtedness to God it rapidly encloses upon us in a very personal and quite troubling way. Secondly, the solution to our crisis begins with humility. Where, where else would you go? What on earth would you do in a situation like this but fall on your knees and beg for forgiveness, beg for an, another route out? The situation is hopeless. The repercussions are catastrophic. But he's failed the king. He's let the king down. There's no other options left. What what on earth would you do but fall to your knees? The servant says, please be patient with me and I will pay it all back. I will. And this servant, he's obviously desperate. He's clinging to hope, but he's still wildly naive. This sense of indebtedness, if we think about it, it it must have defined every aspect of his life. Billions and billions of pounds But even if the king did grant him more time, there's absolutely no hope for him. He's just kicking the can down the road. And so what does he say about us as we we put ourselves in the shoes of this servant? What does he say for us? Of of course, we don't owe God money. That's that's not what this is about. But rather, the essence of this parable for us is existential. It's it's about who, who we are as people, our relationship with God. This is a debt that we've all accrued because all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us are perplexingly indebted to God and there's no plan, there's no self-devised scheme that we could ever craft that can offer us a way out of this mess. And so our opportunity 
the challenge to us, the, the, the option that we have left is to fall on our knees before the king and ask for mercy. That's where this begins. Thirdly, mercy is God's natural work. There's only one verse, 17 words in this parable that's given over to the king's response. And perhaps actually it's the most significant verse in the whole parable. It's the hinge point. It's the moment of decision that would, which would either destroy this servant and all he loved and owned, or it was a moment that would give him unwarranted hope for the future. These are the words that the king says. Sorry, this, this, uh, this, from verse 27, he says that, that, that his master was filled with pity for him. And he released him and forgave his debt. If anybody's read the book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, a wonderful book, I'd highly recommend it. Um, the author challenges the predisposition that most of us have, that the world around us certainly has in regard to God, that he is essentially angry and bitter and judgmental and, and what's the worst for us. He's out to get us. And he challenges that very idea by saying that actually the Bible tells us the opposite to that narrative. We read in Exodus 34, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord is slow to, anger, uh, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. So therefore the natural work of God, the God that um, does these things by his nature the natural work of God is, in essence, it's mercy. It's not wrath and condemnation, it's mercy. And we see this at the very heart of Jesus' parable, that the king's visceral, natural, almost unconsidered and reckless response to the servant is compassion and mercy. But notice that the king doesn't pander to the servant's request. He doesn't say, oh yeah, okay, go away and have some more time to sort your problems out. No, what does he do? He forgives the entire debt. He sends the guy home free. Billions of pounds, the slate wiped clean without any consequences. Can, can you imagine that? The reality of that? This is the God that we love and worship. When we humbly acknowledge our failure, this unpayable debt of sin that we owe to God, when we fall to our knees in sorrow and helplessness, God is compassionate God is merciful, God is slow to anger. He's filled with unfailing love for every single one of us. I think it's beautiful news. That is the essence of the beautiful news. That is what is joyful about the gospel. Not that because God has given us more time to work this out on our own, to figure out our problems, to sort this mess out, but because he's lifted the burden from us and set us free. Fourthly, God's mercy becomes our new standard. When we read through the Gospels, we see that those counter the mercy of God, Jesus' healing, his forgiveness, the deliverance, they're joyfully transformed. They go home singing and praising God for all that he's done in their lives. And when we truly encounter Jesus for ourselves, our lives are never the same again. Yes, we mess things up, we get things wrong. But through the Holy Spirit, we are reborn, we are renewed, and through Christ's mercy, we discover a new abundance of life. But look at what happened with the servant who had just been liberated from all his debt, billions and billions of pounds, set free. 
He leaves the king's presence. He walks out of, of the king's chambers. He goes straight to his fellow servant. He grabs him by the throat and he demands instant payment for the debt, the thousands of pounds that was owed to him. And the fellow servant, the other servant in the story, begs him for more time. So he says, please, give me more time. But the servant who was forgiven has him arrested and sent to prison until he can pay it back. What on earth has gone wrong there? Perhaps the servant completely misunderstood what the king had done. He got the wrong end of the stick. And perhaps he left to the king, desperately trying to raise the money that he owed as quickly as he could. Perhaps. Or perhaps simply that the terror and the trauma of being in the king's presence and facing that verdict as he left, he exploded in anger and outrage at the person he felt was responsible for that situation. Perhaps this was some sort of projection or blame shifting like we see in the story of the fall in Genesis 3. But whatever the reason, the servant failed to grasp the significance and the magnitude of the king's compassion and salvation for him. His heart was so hard and so calloused and self-involved that the king's mercy had absolutely no transformative effect on him. I think it's devastating, actually. I think it's actually pretty scary thinking that something like this is possible, that you or I could encounter the radical mercy of the gospel and it could make no dent in the way that we see our life and the way that we treat people. It's a warning to us. And fifthly, beyond God's mercy lies judgment. The servant's actions shocked and upset those that witnessed that chokehold maneuver, the violent exchange. They reported it back to the king. And so the king called in that servant he had forgiven. He says, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. The king is settling his accounts. The king was recklessly merciful to the servant who owed him this vast amount of money. But now the king is outraged because the servant failed to replicate this new precedent and way of living that's defined by compassion and mercy. I think the servant's vengeful, erratic response, I think it signifies something deeper, a failure to really comprehend that mercy had set him free. And we have to notice, don't we, that the, uh, the servant owed significantly less than what he owed the king. We're talking about thousands of pounds compared to billions of pounds. It was pitting, uh, uh, pittance, really, meaningless amounts of money. Why on earth did the servant need to get back that thousand pounds when his debt of billions had just been cancelled? It doesn't make sense. But the reality of indebtedness that we feel towards one another, perhaps those people that have really hurt you, the reality here is that it, as significant as it is and as real as it is, it's trivial compared to the debt that we've all accrued before God. But also know that this time around, the king doesn't sell the servant into slavery, but rather the king sends the servant to prison to be tormented until he could pay everything back. Interestingly, the, the choice of punishment second time round 
is the same choice of punishment that the servant inflicted on his fellow servant. I find that really interesting. But how and who is going to pay back the billions of pounds that the servant now owes? How on earth is this going to happen? We find ourselves full circle again. The servant finds himself trapped in the prison of despair that he fell to his knees before the king in the first place. And so this final sentence, when we try and place ourselves in the story again, it alludes to this inescapable sense of despair and abandonment that remains for all those who fail to receive God's forgiveness and allow it to transform their lives. And I don't know about you, but it, it makes me shudder. Finally, the golden rule. Jesus brings this parable in Matthew 18 into landing quite quickly. He says, this is what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. I hope and I pray that any servant, any one of us who would stand before the king bearing the weight of an unpayable debt, which is every single one of us, would be overjoyed to receive the compassion and the mercy of absolute forgiveness. The call to each and every one of us here this morning is, uh, who have experienced that mercy and that grace in our own lives, is to radiate the same compassion and mercy to other people. That's what we're called to do. And this is the so-called golden rule that we read about in Matthew chapter 7, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. And I think this is the very essence of today's verse from the Beatitudes. It's such a severe but vital concept that our refusal to show compassion and mercy can actually overturn God's natural work and leave us abandoned to his peculiar work which is uh, rejection and condemnation. And the truth of this parable, parable, it affects every single one of us here. All of us need to know that ongoing radical compassion of God. And all of us in some way, shape or form this morning are wrestling with the reality of Christ's expectation and command to show compassion and mercy to those that are indebted to us. And very quickly, because I'm, I'm well aware of time. But there's a cost associated with this, and I think we can see that. The billions of pounds the servant owed, they didn't just evaporate when the king forgave him, they became the king's problem instead. And this is the heart, we were singing about this earlier, this is the heart of the, of the atonement, this is the heart of the cross of Jesus Christ, that all the accumulated debt of sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And the idea of redemption, this notion of redemption is that you and I are set absolutely free by the fact that Jesus died in our place. Our salvation cost us absolutely nothing, but it cost God everything. And very finally, before we pray, I was just very struck, really, 
by the world around us, by our culture, that I think as we move further and further away from our Christian heritage into this era of post-Christianity, that we're seeing what feels like the emergence of a new shame and honor culture, where forgiveness is scorned, forgiveness is laughed at, forgiveness is ridiculed. The idea of mercy is ridiculed. Vengeance has become a virtue where we silence and cancel those that are indebted to us. The message we've been told from the world and the newspapers and the media and the secular world around us is that forgiveness is weak. It's unnecessary. It's not worth pursuing unless it benefits me. But more than ever, I think we can all say that we are a polarized culture. We're divided. We're at each other's throats all the time. But as Christians, we believe in something bigger than that, I hope. We believe that the joy of our eternal existence is with God, who has shown us undeserved compassion and mercy. As Christians, we're called to extend that same compassion and mercy to those that have hurt us, those that have offended us, those that have damaged us and broken our lives apart. For those of us who are perhaps perpetrators of wrong, we've done hurtful things to people, Of course, we need to humbly accept our failures to repent of what we've done wrong. But for those who have been recipients of sin, those who have been hurt and damaged, that we're called to posture ourselves towards compassion and mercy. As horrid, as unnatural, as unimaginable, perhaps, as it seems at times. And this, of course, doesn't mean abandoning justice or suppressing anger, but it means adopting mercy as our main attitude and motivation in life. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Should we stand together, if you're able, stand with me. Thank you for sticking with me. I know we've had a a packed morning. And uh, we're probably at a time, if you do have children to pick up, uh, feel free to go and pick those kiddies up. If you need to leave your chickens in the oven, that's fine as well. Um, But just before we wrap things up officially, um, I just wanted to pray. Uh, So I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes. And as I was uh, preparing this and thinking this through, I Three groups came to mind, and perhaps you're in all these categories, that's very likely. Perhaps one of them really stands out for you this morning. The things you're carrying, the places you've been, the things that have happened to you. And afterwards, once we'd wrap things up, I'm going to invite people down here to the front. Um, The prayer ministry team will be here, Rich and Kath and I, and a few others will be here to pray with you and to chat things through, but... I was going to try and locate you in one of these three categories. Firstly, I want to pray for those who are, those of us here who feel like you're standing before God as he examines your life and your debt to him. And I want to pray for those who feel perhaps ambivalent or even lukewarm at this whole idea. That the spirit will convict you of your debt and the seriousness of your situation before God. But I also want to pray for those who actually feel crushed by debt and sin. You're carrying things around with you that you've got no way to deal with. 
And because of that, you feel incompatible with God because of shame and guilt and embarrassment and helplessness. Secondly, I want to pray for those of us who are bearing the weight, perhaps, of our own mistakes, the ways that we've affected other people and hurt other people. And so I want to pray for those who have hurt and sinned and betrayed and let down those that you love, or perhaps rejected and turned away the stranger. I want to pray that you feel the impetus of the cross to make amends and seek repentance. And where you're hardened, that you'll remove that facade and truly, deeply entertain the love and mercy of God in your life. And thirdly, I want to pray for those who are bearing the weight of someone else's wrongdoing. Those who are hurting because of what somebody else has done. Those of us who are victims, those suffering, struggling to know how to forgive or what on earth to do with it. And so I pray for those of us who feel trapped by anger. Those who are trapped by bitterness and a desire for justice. I pray for God's intervention. I pray for God's perspective and his peace. And I pray for God's capacity that you may be strengthened to to express compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And so Holy Spirit, I invite you into this last few minutes of our time together.